Let us pray. Lord, we come hungry to feast on your word. We pray as the old prayer says that we would learn, read, mark, inwardly digest it, Lord. You have provided it perfectly to us through your servants by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit. And now, Lord, we sit under it, not as a weight that crushes us, but as the word of the living God and the truth which alone sets us free. Speak through your words in Scripture this morning into our hearts afresh that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ through your word written and embody the word incarnate Jesus by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you want to know what people really think about the season of Lent, you, you could ask them to their face and they, they may give you an honest answer. But you're better off skipping the face-to-face conversation and going straight to the internet. People are going to tell you they're exactly what they think about Lent. None of us would do that. It would be polite, of course. I checked the internet and here's one article that came up as one writer so eloquently put it. Quote, the season of Lent is a drag. I hate giving up potato chips and swearing. I'm much more of a Christmas person. And a headline from another article said, Lent is a bigger drag than a tailpipe scraping highway asphalt. And you know, Having grown up as a very nominal Roman Catholic in New England, I I somewhat get where they're coming from. From the age of 16, I used to lead a a folk mass in music. I wasn't really a follower of Jesus, but they let me lead the music for some reason. And every time we'd get to the Lenten season, they'd change the songbook out. They'd take the nice, big, beautiful, full, exuberant songbook and put that away. And then they'd get out the Lenten songbook. The drab, depressing, minor keys, and that's all I could play. And, and at that time, I just remember thinking, they all sounded to me like subpar versions of that Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sound of Silence. <laughs> Hello, darkness, my old friend. It's time to go through Lent again. But done rightly, though, of course, Lent is not meant to be a drag. It's meant to be a discipline. It's a a season that invites us to self-examination, beginning, as Sam said, on Ash Wednesday and culminating in the celebration of Easter Sunday. And, And really, from the earliest days of the church, the church has recognized that, that the glory of Easter, it can only be properly perceived on the other side of a season of sackcloth and ashes. And so in preparation for Lent, I want to take us through Colossians 3 today. And we'll look at three things. The first thing I want us to see is that the primary thing that God wants us to give up for Lent is ourselves. To give up ourselves by drawing closer to God's own life, which is our life. And the the second thing, after we establish that lifeline to Christ, is to examine this language of Paul saying, take off sin. Put sin to death. Take it off, he says. 
And we can see how the disciplines of Lent will resource that journey. And then once we've taken off sin, we're going to see what Paul means for us by putting on the new man, Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. We're going to start in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verse 3, is I think one of the most powerful truths in the gospel. One of the most powerful passages in the whole, maybe the whole Bible. It says this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now in the original, the your is plural. You don't see that in the English. But the your is a plural your, but the life is is singular. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because it points out the fact that this life that Paul is speaking of is not merely my individual existence, but rather the collective, corporate, empowering life that we all share together. It's not my life, it's not your life and your life and your life, it's our life. In fact, some of the earliest Greek manuscripts, instead of your life, plural, had our life. And that further shows us sort of the meaning that the early church understood in these verses. But, but follow along to verse 4, because it goes even deeper than that. Verse 4 tells us it's not only about our life, but it tells us that our life is actually Christ's life. Don't miss this. This is exactly what the text says. It says this, Christ is your life. Christ is your life. The source, the energy, the power that upholds you now in the present, that keeps you alive, that animates your being is the very life of Christ. The source, the energy, the power that keeps you and carries you and preserves you into eternity it's not my existential little self. It's not my personal life. It is nothing less than the very resurrection life of Christ himself by which we live. And the fact of the matter is Christ is the source of our life. And Christ is the sum of our life. Christ is our life. And we have no life, no true life, no real life, no abiding life apart from him. Everything else is just death dressed up in a designer costume, trying to present itself as something that it never was and something that it can never be. Life. And that is a reminder as we start this Lenten journey that we can't pursue spiritual progress by our own power. The things that promise to give us life the things that we reckon are lifelines. Those aren't lifelines. Those are death lines. And there are two choices, wherever you're at in the faith. If you're someone who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, or if this is your first time in church, there's two options. Either we are drawing our life from the resurrected power of Christ's body, or we're siphoning death from the dust of Adam's lifeless corpse. The first lesson of Lent in Colossians for us today 
is that because Christ himself is our life and because he is our inheritance and we have no life but only death apart from him, the first thing that we give up for Lent has to be ourselves. To give up ourselves to God, whether that's the first time that we do it or the 50th time that we're doing it. To trade in the death lines that link us to Adam and to take up the lifeline that links us to Christ. And once we've taken that line, once we've connected to Christ's life, Paul then moves us, and only then, into the second movement of the passage. We are to take off, we are to put to death sin. Now, the church has always put forth, you know, fasting and almsgiving, which is giving to the poor, and prayer. The, the church has always put these forth as worthy and valuable ways to examine our soul, to grow in the faith during Lent. And Colossians gives us a real reason to focus in on the state of our sinful soul. I mean, there's two different virtue lists right in the space of a couple verses. Did you notice that? Colossians 5 through 11, the first, the first one comes in verse 5. And that deals with the sins of desire, sexual immorality, lust, greed. And then in verses 8 through 9, the second list covers the sins of speech. Lying, slander, obscene language coming from our mouths. And then in verse 11, the ESV tells us to put all of these sinful actions away because it says this. You have taken off the old self and its practices. It's not a bad translation, but what it literally says in the original text is that you have taken off the old man and his practices. Who's the old man? Adam. And why is this important? Well, Paul wants to remind us, in case we were to forget as we start this Lenten season, that what we take off is not just our own individual pasts our own individual stories. What we take off is the pervasive, constraining, killing power of sin that governs all of humanity that is outside of Christ. That's what we take off when we take off sin. It's not just taking off bad behavior. It's taking off death that links us through a death line to the originator of death, Adam. And Paul even has a go at us in verse 7. He's kind of messing with us here. Listen to what he says. It's hard to see it right on the surface, but I'm going to draw it out. It says, you used to walk in these ways also when you were living in them. You notice the language he lives. That's a verb for, for life. It's as if Paul's saying, you're so-called living that you're so drawn to. That was not living at all. That was dying dressed up as living. And Paul then presents through these clever words an opportunity for us to just ruminate a bit, to think a bit about the state of our own souls as we head into Lent. And here's the problem. Sin itself seems to be life-giving. It emulates all the things in life that promise to build us up and promise to give us peace and hope and joy. It mimics those things. That's why we're drawn to it. We're pulled toward it. Have you felt this? You're pulled toward sin as if by a force. And to cease sinning it often feels like suffering a loss, strangely, sadly. 
And we, we come up with all sorts of ways when we're getting into these seasons like Lent. And we think, well, gosh, I have obscene language. And so, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just going to stop it. I'm just going to stop having that language. Right? And, okay. It's a start. And you say, well, I'm going to get a swear jar. And then the problem with that is the more full it gets, the more excited everyone is. I mean, <laughs> trust me, I grew up in Boston. You could, you could mortgage a small home with those jars. <laughs> right? And then we say, gosh, I'd like, to, I'd like to stop all the sexual immorality, so I'm just going to knock it off. Right? There's this viral video going around on the internet. You might have seen it. If you haven't, you should watch it. You'll have a nice afternoon. And it's this woman who's a, a professor of childhood development, and she's explaining how not to try and motivate young children. Right? And it's unfortunately the way that we all usually default to. And she's explaining this by saying she doesn't want any pomegranates, and pomegranates in her classroom. And she goes like this to the kids. She'll go, there are no pomegranates in this classroom. No, 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 no. Not here. And then she looks at them and says, do you understand what I'm saying? That's the, you know what that does to sin when you take that sort of line? That says, not only am I not going to give up pomegranates, I'm going to eat them in your class and you ain't even going to know about it. <laughs> right. It does very little to take that line to sin and say, I'm just going to stop it. Why? Because sin has woven itself like coils of death around you imprinting its pattern upon your soul. You don't just wake up one day and say, well, I think I'll stop now. It's a lot deeper than that. And that's why the church invites us to seasons like Lent. Thankfully, together. Lord have mercy. And I think Paul gives us an opportunity here to talk about how fasting can be one of the ways that we get out ahead of these things. Fasting. First, I want to talk about, though, what fasting is not. Fasting is not necessarily withholding food. Sure, it can be Jesus fasted by withholding food. It's, it's a tradition in the church. It's a great way to generically or generally sort of test your spirit and, and make sure that you're relying on God for everything. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to say that if your approach to Lent is, I'm going to give up ice cream, that's going to do little to nothing to curb sexual temptation. I mean, the connection between the two, I just don't get it, right? There's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between dairy and depravity, right? It was Adam, after all, who ate of the fruit in the garden from the tree, not Ben and Jerry who ate of the ice cream in Vermont from a scoop. The point of fasting, I always wondered this growing up, what is the point? The point of fasting is not to make your life terrible for 40 days so that then you can feel good about yourself when Easter comes. Right? It's not to leave you in a 40-day, dairyless, dark night of the soul. Some people, as it turns out, can't fast. You may be one of these people. Right? You, you have dietary restrictions or, or a regimented diet or you're on certain medications. You're not able to fast and you reckon to yourself, gosh, the next 40 days is going to be a wash. I'm going to be left out. No, no, no. Fasting does not have to be restricted to food, of course, Fasting can happen in many other ways, and I want to commend those to you as well this Lenten season. We can fast not only with our mouths, but also with our eyes. And we can fast with our ears. We can even fast with the way that we plan our time. Fasting's not restricted to food. 
Second, about what fasting is not, and even more important, I think, we do not fast from sin itself. That sounds kind of weird, right? What do you mean we don't fast from sin? I'll tell you what I mean. We don't fast from sexual immorality, right? We flee from it, and not only in Lent, but all the time in every season. We don't fast from cursing for 40 days. We try to forsake cursing in every season forever, always. We don't fast from sin because that would imply that when we break the fast, that we're just, well, we broke the fast, now we're going to return to the sin. So if we don't fast from sin, what do we do when we fast? What is the point of it? It's not to earn favor with God as if we could add anything to the supremacy and superabundance of what Jesus has done. That's not why we fast. We fast by fasting out ahead of the sin. Here's what I mean. And I want to encourage you to do this this Lent. To fast at the level of on-ramps and avenues. To fast at the level of the intersections and the entry point where the death line of sin tries to reach back into our lives and coil itself around us and constrain us with all its fury. And there are a couple different ways we could do this. There's a million different ways. I'll give you two examples. If we're trying to fast from obscene language and patterns that we picked up, one of the ways we can do that is to fast with our time. Chances are, if you've ever drawn, driven on Arlington Boulevard, um, that is a place that is a den of sin that can start to happen. Some people just don't know how to drive because they didn't grow up in Boston. So <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, It's a big world we live in. Um, and so one of the ways to do that is, and one of the times I find myself getting most frustrated, is when you don't plan enough time to travel, and you get in the car, and the little tiny things that shouldn't open up the gates of sin get you right back coiled around sin once again. Falls right back into the notches that sin has etched into your soul. Fasting with your time intentionally is a good way to get out ahead of sin and beat it at the avenue before it could even get in. Sexual immorality, sexual temptation, lust, all these different things that everyone struggles with practically, I would imagine. One of the ways we can do that, one of the, the ways, the entry points that lust comes alive in our hearts is through devices and through screens and through the way we use screens and when we allow ourselves to use screens and if we allow ourselves to use them alone and if we have accountability partners, brothers and sisters we trust. You see, fasting with the eyes from technology cuts off sin at the entry point. And that's one of the ways that fasting can directly impact the cultivation of sin in your life and turn it around. Otherwise, what simply happens is when Lent is over, we become sin recidivists. We just return to the coils that we've always wrapped around because character means that sin is not just something we do, it's become something that we are. And what you're trying to do when you get away from sin is not just to behave yourself. You're trying to unwrap its coils and heal the notches that it's made in your soul. And that's hard work. But remember, it's not work that you do on your own. It's work that you do by the very power of the resurrection life of Jesus in which you now share today and forever and for all eternity. Yeah, old habits die hard. It's true. But they can die. They can die 
if we cut them off at the point of entry. They have no access to our life. We disconnect the death line and stay connected to Christ, the lifeline. And so whatever area that may be in your life, wherever sin is enticing you to go with it, wherever sin is enticing you to grab hold of death and to paint it all up nice and pretty so that it looks like life, examine your soul this week as you start out with Lent and cut off sin at its entry point by fasting out ahead of it so that it can't even have access to your heart. Fast at the on-ramps. Fast at the avenues. And at the very least, you will be more aware of sin's presence. You will be more averse to sin's pull. And you will be less likely to be rewound up in the coils that sin wants to constrain you with. Day in and day out. When someone asks you what you're going to give up for Lent, surprise them this year. By saying I'm giving up myself. Because in a world where death reigns, I want to cling to the life of Christ as the energy that upholds me forever. And then take sin off. Take the old man off in his ways. And then of course, God doesn't want to leave us unclothed. He wants to reclothe us. In what way? He wants to clothe us with nothing less than Jesus Christ. Turn to Colossians 3 verses 11 through 14. Here, here Paul provides the positive counterpart to what we take off with the old man. What do we put on? ESV says we put on the new self. Again, this is the new man. The new man that's being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the creator. We see this same sort of thing in Galatians 3.27 where Paul says, Look, whoever's been baptized has put on... He didn't say they've put on their new self. Who have they put on? Has put on Christ. Put on Christ. The picture then, my friends, is not a picture of a church filled with countless Christians, each individually wearing a Christ attire. I'm wearing Christ, and you're wearing Christ, and together we all wear Christ. The picture is the church... As a singular collective unit into which we're integrated and baptized that is then clothed together so that through each other and together we can walk out the journey of Lent. We can exercise a Lenten obedience in the long direction. Not on the basis of how good we're doing with our own sanctification, but on the basis of the fact that your weakness is the person next to you's strength. And that you don't exist as Christ wants you to exist apart from that benefit. Why would we not want that? And look at verse 11. Everyone is saying, when's he going to get to verse 11? Now, right now, and right on time. <laughs> Sorry. Verse 11 further confirms this theological emphasis, right? What is the first word in verse 11? Here. It doesn't say anything about me and my life and me and how good I am and all this stuff. It says here, here in this place, there is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised. There's not barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and Christ is in all. His life is in us and we are in him. So when we give ourselves up for Lent, this is not a private transaction. No, no. 
we give ourselves up into his body as one body, the church. Here, Christ enlivens our souls. Here, Christ heals us in our brokenness and brings us to new places of spiritual victory. Here, Christ draws us to himself in the darkest nights of our soul or the seasons of our greatest celebration. Here, Paul concludes in verse 14, is where you will find perfection. The ESV translates verse 14 in this way. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. But this sort of translation makes it sound like love is just another one of these virtues. And we just kind of, it's our, it's our belt. We put it on over to hold all the other virtues together. Like they're going to fall all over the place without it. Possibly. But a more literal rendering of this verse is this. Love is the bond which leads to perfection. The word perfection is also translated elsewhere, maturity or wholeness or completion. And we live in a world that longs for wholeness but seeks it in the corpse Adam rather than the resurrected Christ. And tries and tries and tries to convince itself that here is where life is. If I can just make it look right, if I can just make it look good enough, that's going to fill my need. And what the church has is good news in the time of Lent, good news at every time because it's gospel news. That the wholeness you so long for, that the maturity that you know you need to get to, the perfection you seek and the completion that you lack can only be found through communion with Christ. And perhaps this is the most important thing that we could take out of Colossians as we head into the Lenten season. The completion we really need can never come through isolation, but completion only ever arrives through our communion with Christ and each other. That's what it's all about. All around us, we live in a busy area. Even if you're the least busy person in here, you're busier than everyone in Australia. I can tell you that. <clears throat> I'm learning this. I'm learning. It's a curve. It's a learning curve. Trust me. All around us, you can't drive a mile without seeing a big box gym, 24 hours, access. And, and this is good, right? Because we want to pursue physical fitness. We want to be good stewards of our body. We want to feel good and, and exercise. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we work out in these places, so curious to me, we work out in these places with strangers in a warehouse filled with glorious ellipticals and stationary bikes and don't forget the treadmills. Endless televisions just scattered everywhere, all playing different things. The noise, sort of a mixture of life and progress. Each one on their own path. Each one at their own pace. Side by side in the same location, neighbors, and yet strangers. You know, such scenarios might suit the benign description of a workout routine just fine. But that's not the picture that Paul has for the church. And that's not the vision that Paul gives us for Lent together as his people on that road. A, a theologian that I was reading recently wrote this of the church. He said this. Community is vital. Ah, I like where this is going. Community is vital. 
but all members must make it on their own. Hey now, really, really, oh yes, okay. The church, the church, just like the gym, the sanctified warehouse of ecclesial ellipticals, each one on their own path, each one at their own pace, side by side, together, neighbors, and yet strangers. Community is vital, but all members must make it on their own? No, 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 no. See, I think the message of the Bible is more like this. <clears throat> Community is vital, and no members can make it on their own. None. And my prayer for us as a church, this Lent, is that we would be focused way less on what we're fasting from and way more on who we're fasting for. Way less on what we're giving up for Lent and way more about who we give ourselves to in Lent. And not only us, the power and life of Christ within us. And I pray that at the end of 40 days of Lord have mercies in Lent, that we would be able to rejoice with one voice, with the Alleluia, Christ is risen of Easter. Blood runs thick. But the spirit runs deeper. The call of Lent, the call, never mind Lent, the call of the gospel is not a call to join a spiritual pep club. It's a call to be baptized into a real, true, unending, beautiful, fulfilling spiritual family. It's a family that, it's a family that dances together at the father-daughter dance. But then the very next day, mourns well together at the funeral. It's the family that fasts together but also sings praise at the consecration of a new bishop. Because they realize that the life that they share, the life that we share, our life, is Christ's life. And that the life of the Christian in the house church in China, the life of the Christian in a war-torn nation, unable and separated to see their family, the life of any person who's ever trusted Jesus is one life, and that is God's life, and it is in you, and you are alive because of it. A family, a fa look, a family that steps on each other's toes sometimes and argues and learns to argue like old siblings do but a family that forsakes vengeance and gossip as the response and instead offers and extends unbelievable forgiveness and amazing, abundant, unending grace. You want to talk about wholeness world? You want to talk about brokenness? Here is your healing. Jesus Christ and his life. My prayer is that we'd be a family gathered not together because we share the same likes, but because we share the same life. The resurrection life of Jesus Christ, God Almighty, in you. Your life is hid with him in God. And you say to myself, but I don't have any family, John, in the D.C. area. They're all in Boston and Brisbane. They're all over the place. And I would say to you, what did Jesus say when people asked him that question, right? Jesus said, you want to see my family? You want to see my brothers and sisters? Here's my brother, here's my sister, here's my mother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And my prayer is that we would lean into that spiritual inheritance today.
And unbelievably, we're already doing that. And the church has been doing it since its foundation, Jesus Christ our Lord, raised and ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit. That Spirit dwells in you. If that sounds like something you've never heard and you're interested in pursuing, don't wait till the end of Lent. Don't give up ice cream. Give up yourself and come to the living water. Come to Jesus. Don't wait till tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you that in here, the voices of the saints sing songs. And when we do that, it's not just the voices of humans and the worship of instruments, but it's heaven coming to earth and meeting us where we're at and taking off the coils of sin so that we can be set free. We love you, God. We love our church. We love your gospel. And teach us to be people who love one another. Within that, Lord, we will grow to be like the God who is love. Jesus Christ, our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.